Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. It's very good to see you all here this morning. Uh, In case you don't know me, I'm Chris Tufnell. Uh, I'm one of the uh, ministers here. And um, I'm going to be leading us uh, through these uh, few chapters of uh, Genesis over the next few minutes. It would be really helpful if you kept the Bible open um, at page 56, uh, 54, Um, And you uh, might also find it useful to find this handout um, that you received on the way in as well, which will just show you where we're going uh, over the next few minutes. Um, As we begin to look at God's word together, it's always right that we pray for his help. So let me lead us as we do that now. Father, thank you that you speak to us today by your Holy Spirit through your word, the Bible. Please would you do that this morning. Help us to see what you want to say to us from your word, but also to be changed by your word, to face today and the future with a deeper trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the great privileges of uh, my job is the people that I get to spend time with. I love spending time with people and listening to sometimes the most inspiring Christian people about what God has been doing um, in their lives. Wonderful to hear from Godfrey and Helen this morning of God's faithfulness to them through some significant ups and downs in recent years. Um, What normally happens, though, is I normally go to visit someone in hospital or at their home, and I think the idea is that I'm supposed to encourage them, uh, but almost invariably I go away being the one, I'm sure, more encouraged than they are. Um, I get to hear about what God's been doing, how he's brought them through sometimes really difficult times, or is helping them through them at that moment. Um, A few times I've spoken uh, with people very near the end of their lives. I don't think I've ever heard anyone's final words, but I have heard the things that people have been saying about their faith in the final few days of their lives. I remember one man who had a huge impact on me, although he will never have known that, uh, because in the last days of his life, really struggling with ill health, he just spoke so warmly of the Lord, so warmly, it really struck me. Another lady I think of who I spoke to, I think, three days before she died, and she said, uh, there's a lot to praise the Lord for. There's nothing like following him. And uh, I meet these people, and it's a huge privilege, and I, I just I think I want to be like you when I get to that stage. And so I hang off their every word, trying to learn how I can be a bit more like them. Aren't you just encouraged and inspired by Christians like that and uh, our experiences of them? People who are just going for it at the end, right up until the end, full of faith and hope, and you just, I want to be like them. In these chapters, chapters 48 and 49 of Genesis, that we're looking at this morning, and and as we draw this series towards a close, finishing next week, Jacob is just that sort of person. And it's really poignant, because if we've been reading through Genesis, then by this point, we've traveled with Jacob a very long time. We saw his birth right back in chapter 25, when the little scamp was born, clinging to the heel of his twin brother Esau. We've watched this boy grow up, We remember the time he stole his brother Esau's birthright and had to run away to his uncle Laban's house. We remember his dream at Bethel with the stairway to heaven and the promises that God made to him there. All those years working for his uncle Laban to earn the right to marry first Leah and then Rachel. When he finally journeyed home to meet his brother Esau and their reunion, the time Jacob wrestled with God and was given the name Israel as well. 
We think back to those decades of sadness, believing that his son Joseph had died and their emotional reunion in Egypt. And now here he is on his deathbed, an old man full of years with a creased face and failing eyes. And having traveled with him through all these chapters of his life, it's as though he's become to us an old friend. And there's a sense of sadness as we saw him draw, see him draw towards his end. It's the end of an era. And we naturally ask ourselves, as we do whenever a loved one dies, what's their legacy? What outlives them? What do we learn from and take from their life and their story? These chapters are about the end of Jacob's life, but the continuation of his line. The end of his life, but the perseverance of God's promises. They're about an old man whose eyes are failing, but whose spiritual sight is stronger than ever. And as we hear Jacob's final words to his sons, we see the sort of faith that I expect many of us would hope to have at the end. There are two big truths in these chapters, two great legacies of Jacob's story that will help us to cling to the promises of God to the end. Here's the first. It's to see, as Jacob did, that this is not your home. We pick up the story in chapter 48, verse 1, with Joseph receiving an important message. Take a look at chapter 48, verse 1. Sometime later, Joseph was told, your father is ill. He knew this could be the last time he saw his dad, and so it says he took his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, along with him. And verse 2, when Jacob was told, your son Joseph has come to you, Israel, that is Jacob, rallied his strength and sat up on the bed. And the rest of these chapters, chapters 48 and 49, are Jacob's final words to his sons. First, just Joseph and his two boys, then the rest of Jacob's sons as well in chapter 49. So what will he say? Well, he begins by reminiscing on the most defining part of his life, the promises that God has made to him. Look down at verses three and four. Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan, and there he blessed me and said to me, I am going to make you fruitful and will increase your numbers. I will make you a community of peoples, and I will give this land as an everlasting possession to your descendants after you. Jacob's father, Isaac, had delivered this blessing to him, this very blessing, and then it had been confirmed to him twice by God. And the thing we need to see here is that it looked so very nearly like God's promises to Jacob had been fulfilled. The key words used throughout the blessing and the promise made to Jacob are that God would make him and his descendants, one, fruitful, would cause them to, two, increase in numbers, and would give them, three, the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession. So where's Jacob up to on that? We'll look back just before our reading to the end of chapter 47, verse 27. Chapter 47, verse 27. It says this. Now the Israelites settled in Egypt in the region of Goshen. They acquired property there and were fruitful and increased greatly in number. Just the same language God used in the promise. Jacob was doing really well. Let's be clear on that. His son was the prime minister of Egypt, the superpower of the day. Pharaoh had given them the region of Goshen to settle in. Goshen was the best bit of Egypt, by the way. It was like the forward of Egypt. Oh, you live in Goshen. Very nice. 
They were flourishing and growing in number, so much so that eventually the Egyptians would see them as a security threat. Jacob was surrounded by his sons. The family looked safe, his legacy secure, their future certain. But there was one thing missing. Did you notice it? Fruitful? Yes. Increasing in numbers? Yes. The land of Canaan? A land of their own? No. Goshen was great, but it wasn't their own. They were still tenants in Egypt on borrowed land, and as it turned out, on borrowed time, before their hosts would eventually make them their slaves. The promise had not yet been fulfilled, but how easy it would have been for Jacob, from the comfort of his circumstances, to think, close enough. The comforts of Goshen might well have made Jacob give up on the promises of God. Because comfort can make us think, I don't need God's promises. What I've got is good enough for me. I wonder, do you feel like you need the promises of God? Throughout these chapters, what we see of Jacob shows us he's not fallen for the comforts of Goshen or stopped clinging to the promise of God. Let me just show you that. At the end of chapter 47, verse 30, Jacob calls Joseph to him and commands him, do not bury me in Egypt, but when I rest with my fathers, carry me out of Egypt and bury me where they are buried. At the end of chapter 48, verse 21, then Israel said to Joseph, I am about to die, but God will be with you and take you back to the land of your fathers. At the end of chapter 49, verse 29, the very last words of Jacob to his sons. Chapter 49, 29. Then he gave his sons these instructions. I am about to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave in the field of Ephron the Hittite, the cave in the field of Machpelah near Mamre in Canaan. He drew his feet up into the bed, breathed his last, and was gathered to his people. His final words to them, not here, in Canaan. Jacob knew this was not his home. And at the end, he was still clinging to the promise of God. Something I've been asking myself as I've been um, considering these chapters is if I'd been Jacob, would I have settled for Goshen? Or would I have longed for for Canaan? Um, I've always loved uh, living in Sheffield. Ever since I turned up here as a student 11 years ago, I've, I've thought it was a great place to live. What's not to love about Sheffield? It's brilliant. But there is one thing that really sets a city apart, one thing that um, uh, makes it really great. Um, and for Sheffield, that happened on the 27th of September 2017. I don't know whether you've guessed what it was. It is when a city gets its own IKEA. That, that is a great moment in the life of any city. Um, I normally hate shopping, but I love going to Ikea. If you haven't been, it's just brilliant. You go round and it's just a dream. You, you, you kind of swan from one beautiful showroom to another, from a show lounge to a show bedroom to a show kitchen, a show study, you know, all these things. And it just looks amazing. Um, and you begin to imagine what it would be like to live in this beautiful Ikea home. You start filling the trolley with all sorts of things that you don't laugh. I do, I do really dream that. It'd be wonderful. Um, <laughs> You start filling the trolley with things that you, you never imagined that you would uh, buy when you turned up there. And uh, considering furniture, you just haven't even got enough space for. Um, Ikea has made it possible to, to dream of having this gorgeous, kind of um, coordinated, tidy home, and even perhaps on a budget. 
And sometimes I feel myself just getting swept away by it all. If I could just have a home like this, wow. The danger for each of us is that we can begin to feel at home in a place when we're ju- where we're just temporary residents and feel secure when we're on borrowed time forward. Very nice. Friends, this is not your home. As with the Israelites in Egypt, so with each of us, sooner or later, all worldly comforts are shattered and taken away either through the brokenness of this life or through the loss of life. And we don't want to face the loss of any comforts we may enjoy in this world without the hope of a better home, a truly secure home, an eternal home. Look, the point is not to feel bad about having a nice home. There's nothing wrong with enjoying the blessings and comforts of life in this world. I'll still go to Ikea. I'll still try to keep the house nice. But I must remember, do you see, I must remember that one of the tricks the devil plays to try and stop me clinging to the promises of God and the hope of a heavenly home is to make me comfortable. And I think we each need to ask ourselves honestly, have I fallen for that trick? Has comfort made me think, I don't need the promises of God? And in so much as I have fallen for that trick, and I take it that to some extent each of us has, I need to remember the promises of God and see that this is not all he's promised. And that there is so much more. That he has promised me an eternal home with him forever. Somewhere I'll belong like I've never belonged anywhere before. Somewhere secure and without sorrow. And that way I'll be able to stand through all the seasons of life, the hard as well as the good, made steady by the knowledge that I do have a home. It's just not here. I was thinking about how we, um, how we might be helped to remember um, this uh, truth. And you might laugh at this, I, I wouldn't blame you. But um, if you turn over your handout, you'll find on the back that I put, this is not my home. And my thought was that we could each cut it out and stick it up somewhere around your house just to be reminded uh, through the week that this is not your home. You might find that horribly toy, and if you do, um, I totally get it. You don't have to do that. But anyway, I think I'll do it. You might find it helpful as well if you'd like to. Now, uh, look, Joseph brings his two boys, Manasseh and Ephraim, to see his dying father, Jacob, to say goodbye, yes, but also to receive the family blessing from him. We might have imagined that the rest of the story could really have written itself. Surely what's going to happen is Jacob blesses the boys, he says some sentimental words to his sons and then slips away. That's how Joseph expected the story to go. It's how Jacob wanted the story to go, but it's not the way it goes. There's an unexpected twist that makes him angry and shows us the second big lesson of Jacob's life, that this is not your story. Let's take a look uh, back down at chapter 48, verse 8. Chapter 48, verse 8. When Israel saw the sons of Joseph, he asked, who are these? Now, that's a bit odd because just before these verses, it seems that Jacob has acknowledged the presence of Ephraim and Manasseh. Maybe Jacob, with his failing eyes, actually couldn't make out the shapes of the, who are these? Well, more likely, I think, is that it was part of a, a blessing ceremony. Rather like at a wedding today, the minister says, who brings this woman uh, to be wedded to this man? And it's not that he doesn't know the answer. It's just, you know, it's part of the ceremony. It's what you do. And so he says, who are these? Verse nine, 
They are the sons God has given me here, Joseph said to his father. Then Israel said, bring them to me so that I, can, I may bless them. All's going according to plan so far. Then there's a rather beautiful family scene. Uh, look from verse 10. Now Israel's eyes were failing because of old age and he could hardly see. So Joseph brought his sons close to him and his father kissed them and embraced them. Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face again. And now God has allowed me to see your children too. He's grateful to God for the joy of this moment. And then as this blessing ceremony continues, the next thing to happen would be for Jacob to put his right hand on the head of the firstborn and his left hand on the younger brother and then to speak a blessing over them. It was a solemn, irreversible moment. And so Joseph, he lines up the two boys, Manasseh in front of the right hand of Jacob and Ephraim in front of the left hand of Jacob and he nudges them forward towards granddad. Go on, boys, go get the blessing. But that's when Jacob goes off script. Verse 14. But Israel reached out his right hand and put it on Ephraim's head, though he was the younger And crossing his arms, he put his left hand on Manasseh's head, even though Manasseh was the firstborn. And before Joseph could stop him, he started the blessing. May the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel who has delivered me from all harm, may he bless these boys. May they be called by my name and the names of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and may they increase greatly upon the earth." When Joseph saw his father placing his right hand on Ephraim's head, he was displeased. So he took hold of his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. Joseph said to him, no, my father, this one is the first one. Put your right hand on his head. What are you doing, Joseph thinks? It's a reasonable question. What is Jacob doing? This wasn't the silly mistake of a doddery old man. When Joseph tried to correct him, verse 19 says, his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. It was a deliberate act to put the younger brother Ephraim before the older Manasseh. But why? Jacob wasn't thinking this is just a quirky little family tradition we do now. It happened to me and my brother, so I thought it would be nice to carry it on. That's not it. In the next chapter, Jacob gets all of his sons together and he blesses them each individually, one at a time, telling them what their future will be. And some of what he says is incredibly specific. And again, he goes off script, not blessing his firstborn Reuben, but putting the younger Judah before all the other brothers. And the point is that both there and here with Ephraim and Manasseh, Jacob is acting as a prophet. And a prophet, what do they do? They listen to God and deliver God's word to his people. A prophet is like a messenger who stands between God and the people and relays the message. He doesn't make it up, he passes it on. And as Jacob puts Ephraim before Manasseh, as he puts Judah before Reuben, he's not making it up, he's passing it on. He's telling Joseph and his brothers what God's will is for this family. He's showing them what God's decided will happen. You see, actually, he's not gone off script at all. He's just sticking to God's script. He's a prophet. But it angered Joseph, and I'm sure it angered Reuben too. It wasn't supposed to happen that way. Of course, Jacob could understand Joseph's irritation, I'm sure. He'd had his his own share of it wasn't supposed to happen that way moments in his life. Times when God had appeared to go horribly off script. When he had to flee his home and his brother Esau. 
when his uncle Laban tricked him into marrying the wrong daughter and signing up for another seven years of servitude in order to marry Rachel, who he really loved, when she then died in childbirth, when their first son Joseph was apparently killed by a wild animal and presumed dead for more than 20 years. He knew the agony of life going ways he hadn't planned. And how many times he must have wanted to force the hand of God, not that way, this way, and then been left confused when he couldn't understand what God was doing. And if comfort can make us think, I don't need the promises of God, then this kind of confusion can make us think, I don't believe the promises of God. I can't trust a God who would let this happen. This whole book has been an unexpected series of twists and turns. It seemed like the story would go one way and it went the other. And yet, the promises stand. And yet, the family is preserved. And as Jacob looks back, he can see that behind it all, a faithful and sovereign God has been invisibly guiding events. There's a dear old lady in this uh, church family. Um, she can't make it to services anymore because she's housebound, but she's a wonderful Christian woman full of faith. I, I won't name her, but um, a number of you will know her. And when I tell you something that she's said to me many times now, I expect some of you will know who it is because she will have said it to you as well. Um, I visited her a number of times over the last couple of years, and I think probably every single time I've gone, she's said this line to me, uh, which I'm glad she has. It's worth repeating. She looks me in the eye, and she says with a smile, I can trust God for the path ahead when I look at the road behind. I can trust God for the path ahead when I look at the road behind. She trusts him to be faithful in the future because he's been faithful in the past. Perhaps you and I, as we look back down the road of our own lives, we can see how the Lord has been faithful to us. But it's quite possible there are some here who honestly can't. I was speaking to a man recently who said he didn't really feel like he'd ever had any good news, that life had just been a a string of sadnesses. And that's why, as Christians, we need to learn to look back further down the road behind. My eldest boy, William, has just turned four, and one of his presents was uh, he got, he got a, a pair of red binoculars, which he's very, very proud of. And uh, we've been looking from our living, uh, our living room window out at the hill in the distance over, over there. There's really not very much to see. It's quite boring. There are some sheep, and there's a horse. I think it's brown. It might be black. It's somewhere over there. Um, not much to look at at all. Um, but we, uh, we put the binoculars up, and we look, and we can see this horse that was distant and now made large and it occasionally moves so we can just tell that it really is alive and we've been staring at um, these rather boring scenes um, from our window and um, through this binoc- these binoculars that make what is distant large now Jacob saw something in the distant future that he prophesied in chapter 49 he's blessing his son Judah giving him the blessing that would normally have gone to the firstborn and then this is what it says in verse 10 look, look down at chapter 49 verse 10. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. That's another way of saying from his descendants. These symbols of royal rule, the scepter and the ruler's staff, will pass down Judah's descendants until, verse 10 continues, 
until he comes to whom it belongs and the obedience of the nations is his. The kings of Israel would come from Judah's line, but then would come the king to whom the scepter and the ruler's staff belong, the true and final king. What Jacob looked forward to in the distant future, we who are Christians can look back to in the distant past because that king did come. The last book of the Bible describes him as the lion of Judah. And as a Christian, to see God's faithfulness to me in the past, I need to take a pair of binoculars and look back far down the road behind me to make what is distant large. When I do that, I see standing there my King Jesus. And I see him dying for me on a cross. And any doubts about his faithfulness to me and his love vanish. We have even more on the road behind to prove God's faithfulness than Jacob did. Because if King Jesus came and died for me, then I can trust him whatever the future holds. I can trust God for the path ahead when I look at the road behind. If Jacob had been writing Genesis, he would never have chosen so many of the twists and turns that ended up being the means that God preserved this family and kept his promises to them. But by the end, he had learned that this was not his story. It was God's, but that he could trust God. And so Ephraim before Manasseh, Judah before Reuben. And Jacob's willingness to let God determine his family's future challenges us also to accept that this is not our story and to release the grip we hold on our lives and to learn to trust him when it feels like he's gone horribly off script. To sing, as we did earlier in that new song, when things in my life don't make sense, I will trust you, for you are good. You are good. I wonder, do we trust him like that? When I'm confused? When life just will not go the way I want it to? Jacob is the main character in Genesis. He's mentioned more than anyone else's, but it's not his story, it's God's. And actually, the main theme isn't Jacob's faithfulness to God, but God's faithfulness to the often faithless Jacob and his messed up family. It's not a call to be a giant of the faith like Jacob, but to rest in the faithfulness of God to you and me. The dear lady I mentioned earlier, like Jacob, She knows this is not her home. And she longs to go there. But she also knows this is not her story. And she trusts God with her future. The one who has been faithful to her on the road behind. And she knows will be faithful on the path ahead. In the book of Hebrews, the author writes about Abraham, Isaac, Sarah and Jacob. And he says this. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. What a wonderful thing to be said of you at the end. May it be said of each of us. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for the example of giants in the faith like Jacob. But we're so grateful that our hope isn't grounded on our faithfulness to you, but your faithfulness to us. Something we can be sure of because you gave us Jesus. Father, when we're comfortable and when we're confused in all the seasons of life, keep us clinging to your promises and longing for a better country. In Jesus' name, amen.